Well, we're in a series on the Gospel of Luke, and this week we come to chapter 4, verses 31 through 44, and really what Jesus did on a single Sabbath day. So again, chapter 4, we're going to pick it up with verse 31. And he, that is Jesus, went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's uh, go to him in prayer again. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privilege of being called by you to gather together. We who are sinners, we who are broken, we who are carrying so many different things and concerns and cares with us this morning. So I pray for us that you would put your spirits in with and amongst us, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear that this word might penetrate deep into our minds and into our hearts and really into our feet that we might follow where you lead us. We pray all of this in our Savior's name, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Well, last week we saw Jesus come to his hometown of Nazareth after really an initial ministry run in Galilee. And as we saw his hometown synagogue, well, one, it, it recognized that what was coming out of his mouth was remarkable and good, even as they, well, two, rejected that he himself was the fulfillment of Isaiah 61 and the year of Jubilee. So they were all for the Jubilee. And remember, he read from the scroll of Isaiah, turned to Isaiah 61. They're all for the Jubilee, uh, but they rejected Jesus as the fulfillment of that. In response, he did not give them a sign like they demanded, though he did perform a miracle in their midst, and they ironically, or perhaps maybe not so ironically, but fittingly, they missed it. And in turn, Jesus warned them that if they rejected him and his gospel, God would turn to the Gentiles and bring Gentiles into the kingdom, just like he did 
during Elijah and Elisha's ministry to northern Israel hundreds of years previous to this. And in response, the synagogue rose up against their hometown boy, against Jesus, and attempted to murder him, which of course is exactly the sort of thing that happened uh, to prophets like Elijah. Well, our passage finds Jesus having made his way back to Capernaum, where he had previously ministered and uh, received good reports. And like we saw last week, he's continuing his pattern of going to the local synagogue on the Sabbath and teaching. Most likely, he was invited to teach. And the people's reaction in Capernaum is similar to what we've, we've seen before. They were astonished at his teaching for his Word, as Paul puts it, excuse me, as Luke puts it there, his word possessed authority. Now, if you go back uh, to the beginning of chapter 4, because all of this stuff ties together, all these narratives inform one another. If you go back to the beginning of chapter 4, Jesus uh, was tempted by the devil in the wilderness to turn stone into bread. And in response, Jesus quoted Deuteronomy 8, man does not live by bread alone. We know from Matthew's account that Jesus actually finished out that phrase, but lives by the very word of God. That's what you find in Deuteronomy 8. But in Luke's account here, uh, Jesus doesn't finish the line. And the reason why uh, Luke does not include the line, I think, can be explained by comparing Luke's account of that first temptation against the prophet Ezekiel in light of what we talked about last week. So if you remember from last week, we compared Luke's emphasis on Jesus taking that scroll, again, the scroll of Isaiah, and then reading the scroll, and then rolling the scroll back up, then preaching with Ezekiel 2 and 3, where Ezekiel was commanded to take a scroll, which was the word of God, to literally eat it, and then to preach to an Israel that would not listen to God's word. So Ezekiel ate the word of God, literally ate the word of God, and the word of God came out of his mouth through his preaching. Now Jesus, as we know from John's gospel, is not merely a prophet, though he is certainly a prophet. He himself is the very word of God. So Luke doesn't have Jesus finish the life, the line, but lives by the very word of God because he instead demonstrates it. He demonstrates Jesus doing it and goes a step farther by showing that Jesus himself is the very word of God. So when the crowds recognized that Jesus' word possessed authority, they were rightly astonished by it, just as uh, the people of Israel at the foot of Sinai were astonished and fearful of God speaking from Sinai. They're astonished by it, even as it appears, though, they did not recognize that Jesus was the very Word of God. And so the issue is not that, that Jesus explained the Word of God with some measure of authority or with confidence. I mean, I, I think I, I speak with confidence in God's Word as an educated authority. No, the, the difference between Jesus and his, his servants is that his preaching is the very word of God because he is the word of God. Again, the way John understands Jesus, the way John understands Jesus right from the very beginning of his gospel is that when you look at Genesis 1, 
God the Father created all things through his word. And John tells us that that was actually his son. His son, Jesus the Christ, in the power of the Spirit. And this word that brought creation into existence has now taken on flesh and even commands evil spirits and fevers and storms, among many other things. And present among the congregation, though, was a man who actually did recognize Jesus' authority. The man, of course, had, an, uh, had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And in turn, Jesus rebuked the demon, and that's a word we, we never use, right? To rebuke is to reprimand or to censure someone, and it's telling that Jesus also rebuked a fever in verse 39 and would again rebuke more demons later in the day. Jesus rebuked the demon here, telling him to be silent and to leave the man, which it did. And we'll talk about why he wants him or commanded him to be silent later, as this is not the last demon we're going to encounter. When you go through the Old Testament, though, it's interesting because you hardly uh, ever encounter demons like this. It's not to say that you don't find spiritual evil or demonic activity. You most certainly do. But you don't find possession or oppression like you do in the Gospels. And it's hard to know exactly what to make of the difference, but it seems likely that as the time grew near for the Messiah to appear, something that both Israel and clearly the spiritual realm both anticipated. They both knew the book of Daniel, for example. It seems that God's people were then under real spiritual oppression at this time. Sometimes, you know, spiritual warfare is hidden from our eyes. And you get a hint of that in the book of Daniel as well. But often, it plays out in our midst, even as we, as you know, so-called modern people, actually have a willful cultural blindness to it. So, for example, just as Moses served as God's representative in Egypt, so too Pharaoh for the serpent. And what you see in the book of Exodus is real spiritual warfare played out through human actors in this material realm. See, ancient people were not across the board delusional any more than modern people are. And there's plenty of delusion in our own day. In fact, I'd say ancient people are about as delusional as modern people are. Ancient people didn't offer sacrifices to their imaginations, though sometimes they did. No, they were very familiar with spiritual beings. Now, another example of spiritual warfare that goes largely missed by Christians. Another example of spiritual warfare played out in the human realm could be seen with David and Goliath. And again, the same thing was at work with Jesus' birth, with the attack by Herod, which was a variation on the serpent attacking the offspring of Eve, like what you see with the birth of Moses. Again, it's so-called modern and enlightened people that think this material realm is all there is and that everything can be explained by politics or power dynamics or psychologists or what happened to us in our childhood. Now, of course, such things have their role. They absolutely have their role in their proper place, but there is 
There's no explanation, say, for Hitler without reference to the demonic. I would say the same thing in terms of what trans activists and medical clinics are doing to children in the name of care and affirmation. The prophets of Baal have changed their name and claim to worship no god, but they are still calling for child sacrifice. That's demonic. It's also apparent that not every possession or oppression by a demon looks like the movie The Exorcist or a horror movie. As an aside, this is worth explaining for just a moment, there's a difference between possession and oppression, right? And a human can be oppressed by a demon without being outright possessed by one. And if you're worried about demon possession and whether it can happen to you, if you are possessed by the Christ through his Holy Spirit, it is impossible to be possessed by a demon. But that does not mean you cannot be attacked by one. After all, the Holy One of God, the Holy One of Israel, was both attacked by demons and, as we see here, he was mocked by them. Even so, the greatest weapon you have, the greatest weapon you have, like what David knew with Goliath, is God himself. It's God himself. God is our rock and our shield. So, if for whatever reason you feel you are being attacked, and it does happen, pray. Pray. It doesn't mean you won't endure pain or suffering. Just ask Job for how things went for him, which, by the way, is an example of demon oppression, and he had no idea that that was what was happening to him. But it does mean that your God is with you, and he will never forsake you. So it is apparent that this man with the demon was in their midst and was in some manner, think about this, was in some manner participating in the life of the synagogue. And presumably, he was not disrupting it, that is, until he saw Jesus. There's no reason to think that demonic forces would not attack a gathering like ours. Or that being in this building, as beautiful and as wonderful as it is, in and of itself keeps the devil at bay. Or that de demonic attacks are always spectacular or always terrifying. My hunch is that most demonic attacks are aimed right at our weaknesses and our sinful inclinations and are typically on the same theme that you could find right from the beginning with Genesis 3. Is God really good? Did God really say not to do that? Should you really have to do without that? It's fascinating, though, in our passage that the demon, he seems unable to be able to help himself. He has to speak, and he simultaneously mocks Jesus even as he gives an orthodox confession about Jesus. Jesus is the Holy One of God. And what's more, he knows that his time is limited and that judgment is coming, but he's not exactly sure when that judgment will be. Is it this moment or some other time to come? We will see this play out again in Luke chapter 8 with that famous scene involving legion uh, and a herd of pigs. Either way, the demon recognizes that his time is short because the king the Holy One of Israel has made landfall. 
and he's on the move. And remember last week, we saw Jesus announced that Isaiah 61 had been fulfilled in him, and in turn, God's kingdom had shown up in power. And now you see it happening. Now you see it happening. This, this is his entire ministry. Jesus announced good news to the poor, and here he is liberating a man held captive by a demon right in the middle of Sabbath worship. So what Jesus does for this man, liberating him from the ultimate tyranny of the devil, is a sign of what he will do ultimately for the world. It's important then to see that Jesus is on the offensive. He's on the offensive. It's like how Jesus responds to Peter's confession in Matthew 16. In that passage, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. In response, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That is Simon, son of Jonah. That's an interesting thing to call him. We should talk about that on our Sunday night study. Let me keep going. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So, like with the creation of the world, God through this world word will bring about his kingdom. Through this word, God will redeem and remake the word, world. But notice that Jesus says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. People, including Christians, often get things exactly backwards and mistakenly think that Satan and in turn hell are on the offensive. Go to church or the devil will get you. Right? What does that billboard assume? The gates of hell are on the offensive. And the church is like a foxhole, the only safe place in a world full of devils, right? No, with the arrival of Jesus, hell, which in this case in Matthew 16 is a symbol for Satan and his minions, is on the defensive. And Satan cannot withstand the onslaught. And the demons know it. They know it. In response, the synagogue is again astonished by what they witness amongst them. And they ask, what is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. So clearly, Jesus demonstrates that he is the word of God in his teaching, but also in his dominion over evil spirits. Again, this is the same God whose dominion over the heavens and the earth by the word of his mouth was on display in the takedown of Egypt and their false gods. Now, after the moment with the demon, Jesus left the synagogue. I can't imagine what else there was to do there, right? So he leaves uh, the synagogue and he entered Simon, or as we know him better, Peter's house. Now, Peter had not been called as a disciple yet. That comes in the next chapter, but clearly he had already had to some extent been interacting with Jesus, and it is safe to assume that he had welcomed Jesus into his home. This moment in many ways anticipates chapter 9 when Jesus will send out his disciples to minister throughout Israel and he tells them that if a household does not receive or welcome them, his disciples were to leave the town and shake off the dust from their feet as a testimony against them. So here, 
Peter had clearly welcomed Jesus into his home in a way that the people in Nazareth had not. So whereas Nazareth received warning about future judgment and no healings, no exorcisms, no miracles, Capernaum received God's blessing from Jesus. And we read that Peter's mother-in-law had a high fever. So let's assume, I don't know, let's say 104. And there's no ibuprofen available at the local CVS. And Jesus, like with the demon, rebuked the fever, and it left her immediately. And again, like the man with the demon, she was immediately changed and required no recovery time. Luke intentionally uses similar language between the demon and the fever, not because Luke can't tell the difference between the two. Again, ancient people were not dumb. But because both, uh, in their own ways, the demonic attack and fevers are attack, attacks on God's good creation, in particular, his image bearers. So it is obvious that demonic attacks are evil and unnatural. Even Hollywood gets that, right? But in the modern world, we, we've come to think of physical illness as merely natural, as if they're just how things are. But just because something is a normal part of our existence does not mean God intended it or that it should be normal, let alone that it's not a product of Adam's fall into sin. That's why Jesus didn't merely remove the, the fever. He rebuked it. For good reason, then, part and parcel with his teaching ministry was his healing ministry. They went together. It's why his cross and his resurrection go together, because there's no life to come without both. There's no life to come without the cross and the resurrection. Of course, those he healed through his ministry, like Lazarus, who he raised from the dead, would still eventually die. Even so, all those healings, like the exorcisms, are signs that the new creation, the jubilee, has shown up. And in turn, they point forward to the resurrection of the dead and God's desire to redeem every last atom of us. Well, we read in verse 40 that when the sun was setting, so at the end of the Sabbath and the beginning of the new day, and remember... If you read Genesis 1, think of it in terms of it was evening and it was morning, a day. Jesus healed everyone who showed up with diseases of every kind, laying hands on them, and included within this were people with demons, some of which were also sick with other illnesses too. And like with the first demon, these demons cried out, you are the son of God, and Jesus rebuked them and told them not to speak because they knew who he was. Very quickly, it's because the time wasn't right for the world to know exactly who he was. And we'll get into that in sermons to come. Uh, now, as an aside, this is really interesting. Up to this point in Luke's gospel, no human, no human has recognized that Jesus is the Son of God. Only angels and demons have rightly confessed him. Some from a position of faith, clearly. Some from a position of mockery, but still, they recognize him. But notice that even though he is the word of God who could do all things through his word, Jesus laid hands on every single one of the people who came to him. And that tells you something important. 
that tells you something important about our God. He's compassionate. He's compassionate, but it's not a distant, altruistic compassion. That the Son of God willingly put his hands on every single one of these people tells you that he genuinely cared for them. And in our culture, touching someone can be very off-putting and is often frowned upon. And in some cases, not all, dealing with people who are sick is very much a purity issue for us, especially if you don't know where that person has been, which, of course, you don't. You don't know where they've been. Just the simple action of shaking someone's hand. I mean, do you really think that hand is clean? Do you really think that hand is sanitized? No, you, you don't know where that person has been. And for many, even a handshake is a threat to some. So, for example, during the pandemic, people very quickly became obsessed with purity. And the scientific jargon for this, and I understand it, is contact tracing. And it was expressed, however, with who gave it to you? Who gave that to you? With the implication that a person had not merely made you sick, he had defiled you. He had defiled you. Jesus is not put off by our sin and our disease. No, unlike us, the Holy One of Israel, the pure one, he leans in to the impure and to the defiled. And he touches them. Don't you know when he touches them? He wasn't this. He had to be close into them and interacting with them. That's your God. But let's ask the question, what if God does not heal you? Which is a live question these days. What happens if God does not heal you? I mean, after all, Jesus didn't heal everyone in Israel. What if he leaves you with a debilitating disease or a permanent limp? Does that mean he has no compassion for you? Or does not love you? Or worse, is it like with Elijah and Elisha when people outside of Israel received healing as a judgment against Israel? Is God judging you by not healing you? If you will think back to how the devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness, it was always some version of, are you really the son of God? And if so, should you really have to suffer? And one of the things that was implicit in each temptation was a denial of the life to come. That is, the life we have right now, this time, this place, this moment, is the only life there is. That's why we have bucket lists, right? So Jesus could have the kingdoms of this world immediately without having to suffer for them. He could be king without having to endure the cross that would usher in the life to come. And it's like that old psychological experiment about delayed gratification. Maybe you've heard about this. Where a kid is given the option of having a piece of candy right now. It's set right in front of him, like on a plate or something like that. But if he can wait 10 minutes, so the researcher will tell him, if you could just wait 10 minutes without eating this candy right in front of you, you'll be given more candy, maybe much more. And the researcher then leaves the room for 10 minutes, 10 minutes with the kid in the room by himself, piece of candy right there on the plate in front of him. Guess which option 
most kids choose. Many Christians are just like this, too. They, like most people in America, believe the only real option is the candy right in front of them. God seems to have left the room, and there is no telling whether or when he will come back with more candy like he promised. You know, to us, God seems cruel. Not only because he makes us wait, but because so often the candy that was right in front of us seems to be taken away too. If God leads you through suffering in this life, and if you have a body, if you have loved ones, if you have friends, suffering is inevitable. That suffering is not evidence of his lack of concern for you. That's what the world tells you. It's not evidence of his lack of concern for you. Otherwise, he had no concern for his own son. And of course, some modern critics do say that God the Father is guilty of child abuse. That's how they read it. No, God will not let you walk through the, that pain of suffering alone, though at times it absolutely feels that way. And that's exactly what the devil said to Adam and Eve. Should you have, should you have to endure the pain of patiently waiting on God to act? Should you have to wait on him to provide for you? Should you have to endure a hard life that doesn't end well when so many other people, even very wicked people, seem to have it so good? Isn't this life all there is? Is there really a life to come? So while, like he did with Paul, God might choose to not remove whatever the thorn in your flesh might be, even so, he has promised to resurrect you from the dead. And whatever pain and suffering you endure now, and I am not dismissing it for a second, it's hard, it's real, it will be relieved by our God, by his own hand, in his own timing. Well, verse 44, 42, excuse me, tells us that at daybreak, Jesus sought a desolate place to escape the crowds. And I like to think that perhaps Jesus was an introvert, but it's really an indication that he was just humanly exhausted because he's the God-man, fully God and fully man. And yet the crowds found him, they went looking for him, and they, they wanted him to stay. And in response, he says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. Notice how Jesus summarizes the gospel. The good news of the kingdom of God. You know, so often when we think about the gospel, we focus on justification as an act of God's free grace, whereby he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us and received by faith alone. That's the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 33. And it's, of course, good and right. That's, that's right. A far simpler and popular, popular version of that is Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And again, that is good and that is right. But that's not actually what Jesus said here. That's not what Jesus said here. The doctrine of justification by grace alone is key. In a lot of ways, you should think of it as a lever for understanding how a person is made right with God. But as Jesus makes clear, even as the gospel hinges on the cross, the implications are actually bigger. Fundamental to Jesus' ministry was his proclamation that the year of Jubilee had arrived in him, which in turn meant 
that God's promised redemption of the world, which included his kingdom coming to cover all of creation, he's on the offensive as the healings and exorcisms serve the signs. And the means, the lever, the how by which a person be, could become part of that kingdom was through this king and his death and resurrection. That's all there. When you think of the gospel, you should think of it as huge, as cosmic, as covering every last bit of God's creation. But what I find most striking in all of this, and this is the final thought I'm going to leave you with. I know I've thrown a lot today. It's God's faithfulness and his unrelenting pursuit of his people and in turn the nations. Jesus must proclaim the kingdom to all the towns of Israel. His faithfulness to his people compels him to do it. You know, after humanity's long and sinful history, here we find Jesus pursuing Israel still and still offering life to whoever wants it. Jesus is, he's relentless. He's relentless in his offer of life. And not once has God abandoned his creation. Not once. Not once has God said humanity is not worth it. No, since the fall of Adam, God has pursued his image bearers. And it culminates with the Son of God proclaiming the kingdom of God and giving his life so that all may have life with him. That is the gospel. Praise God for it. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, there is no God like you. There is no false God that offers what you offer. They all demand our life and offer us lies. You offer us the truth and give us your life for ours. Thank you for your grace, for your faithfulness, for your kindness, for your unrelenting patience. You are good, and your steadfast love endures forever. We pray all of this in our Savior's name, Jesus. Amen.